Our text this morning is from James chapter 1, verses 19 to 27. If you would turn there in your Bibles, James 1, beginning in verse 19. I find it interesting the extent of misconceptions surrounding the holidays in our country. We just passed Memorial Day where many miss the intent of this day, which is to honor our fallen soldiers. Yet many misunderstand the focus of several of our holidays. We've had flags up in our neighborhood and along government for some time, and many have thought, and even some of our neighborhood commented, well, the Boy Scouts must just not have been energetic enough to come take them down. When in fact, it was a celebration of Flag Day, which occurred between that holiday and the one we're embarking upon shortly. Many missed the intent of the 4th of July as seeing it as a nice time for a day or two off in the summer to enjoy your favorite activity because some men decided that today is the anniversary of the day that we would be free. When, of course, this day was not a casual day of celebration. This was the day when our founding fathers declared war, stating that they would rather die than live under the tyranny of their homeland and religious oppression. This was a somber and daunting day in our country's history. And yet, it is right and necessary that we understand the true meaning of these events and that because of these foundations, we should be those who have a greater love and respect for those who made this great nation. By the way, the excellent article in our ministry highlight and your worship guide focuses on these very things. It's also right and necessary that we understand the meaning of God's word properly, which is one of the reasons we gather each Lord's Day. And today we want to understand the realities of our text in the God, in the epistle of James. And as we understand, we also should gain a greater love and respect for our glorious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's just what this text does and what our title addresses. I've titled our message, Proper Religious Affections. Proper Religious Affections, we would call this part three as this is our third endeavor into this text. Let me read through our text and then make a few comments for you. James chapter 1, beginning in verse 19, if you'd follow along as I read. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. 
pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Proper religious affections. James embarks on this very difficult teaching by associating himself with the audience in verse 19 as he calls out, my beloved brethren. This also indicating that he sees himself in the midst of this very struggle that he is about to address with his congregation. That he is another member of the church and that he is dealing with the same issues and challenges which each of them are dealing with. This is a vital connection for every pastor to make. As we've discussed, James is the pastor of the largest church of the day. The church of Jerusalem, mega church even by today's standards, perhaps over 10,000 individuals. And James writes his epistle as the first New Testament book written in A.D. 45. Paul writing 1 Thessalonians and Matthew penning his gospel shortly after James has written this epistle. We've discussed all this and more over the past weeks and you can refresh yourselves on these messages by going back to our website. And likewise, this is our third message in the series, as I mentioned, and you can go back and reflect on those prior two verses. But our section began with this threefold exhortation, that of hearing and speaking and anger. And each of these exhortations was preceded by the command to know. That was the beginning of verse 19. This you know. Or in some translations, know this. The verb indicating James expected his church to have a head knowledge of these particular instructions that they should understand and have at least a mental assent to what it means to be those who are quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. This uh, is the beginning of all that he brings us. And what we saw at this critical component was what these actions referred to. That is, what one is to know and how each of these actions applies to that body of information. And of course, that was back from verse 18, a very important point for us, where it is the word of truth that is being identified. It's God's word to which each of these actions apply. And this was the effective introduction we saw from our first point. The order of the elements changed as the text began with anger, And that being our second point, the effect of anger. And we noted that first, we all need to recognize that anger exists in us. It would be great to say, no, that's something that I've gotten taken care of. That I don't battle with these issues of anger. But the reality is that each one does. And after recognizing one's anger, we are to realize that that anger must be stripped off as if it were a soiled garment and cast from you. The reason being that eternity hangs in the balance as far as one's response to anger. And this is what verse 21 explained. The vital nature of a proper response to anger is impossible to overemphasize. So the word of truth which governs our whole section was again reemphasized in verse 21 as the implanted word which is able to save your souls. 
and to make certain that your proper religious affections allow you to rightly understand the effect of anger. Our third point, which we looked at last week, was the effect of hearing. And of course, it is by hearing the word of God that becomes integral with saving faith coming to the individual, as Romans 10 clearly conveys. The word of God also brings knowledge of righteousness and right living, for it reveals the way in which we are to be obedient to God, and also all the ways in which we sin in rebellion against God. And we noted that this wasn't simply legal obedient, legalistic obedience to rules or standards. Rather, it was an attitude of the heart that was most important. Those who don't live and grow with an obedient heart, or even those who just legalistically obey are deluding themselves, as the text tells us. And the measure of this is how you respond to the word of God the word of truth, the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. All of this given as an illustration of a man looking in a mirror and immediately forgetting what he saw. But the proper response was in verse 25, which read, but one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. So this one who is intently searching the word of God, and that's what's being referenced by the perfect law, the law of liberty, that is the law of God, the word of God. And as he lives there, he becomes one in whom the word of God is lived out. Does that make sense? As we continue to pour ourselves into the word of God, to live in it and to dwell in it, then soon we start living it out. And our lives become an expression of that word. Now with the proper religious affections to anger and hearing established, we turn to our fourth and final point in our section this morning, the effect of speech. The effect of speech. Look at verse 26 with me and we'll reread that together. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Now James brings the point of introspection. In case someone was to say, I've done all of that. I've, I've got my anger fully under control. And I'm fully hearing and living the word of God. The response, by the way, for one who would say that is like the rich young ruler from Mark 20, who said to Jesus, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Which, by the way, the rich young ruler didn't. And neither has anyone fully lived out God's word in these ways. Because if such was the case, one could not sin. And we know that each one sins every day. So verse 26 is written to one who thinks they've accomplished all the preceding details of controlling anger and of hearing the word of God. And the impossibility of this condition is confirmed repeatedly in the first phrase, if anyone thinks. The indication in, the, in this phrase is that one ought not to think this. It's a common phrase indicating a negative result. 
For instance, a child may do something wrong and his father might say, if you think you're going to get away with this young man, you're sadly mistaken. So this phrase, if anyone would think, indicates that there is something that is amiss in even the discussion. This is further expressed by the generic term, anyone. And even the meaning of the Greek word for think carries this notion of a misguided concept. That word think, as Hebert notes, is a subjective mental estimated opinion about a matter which men form. So that's what the thinking is. It is man's assessment. It is a mental opinion. And it's further emphasized by the word religion. This word is used only in these two verses in the scripture. And he doesn't reference righteous or godliness as what someone might think, but rather this word religion. If anyone thinks himself to be religious. John MacArthur notes this term is used to emphasize the external trappings, the the rituals, the routines, and forms that were not followed with sincerity. Another commentator notes, this is the zealous and diligent performance of the outward and ceremonial acts of worship. So left unmodified, this term is not a positive reflection of one's spiritual life. The word is used in Acts 26.5 to refer to the religion of the Pharisees in a, in a different form. And in Colossians 2.18 to the wrongful worship of angels. So no one of a proper biblical mindset should have this perspective. And yet the reality of the condition shows that many do have just this opinion. Many think that they are indeed religious. And that they are all living an adequate and acceptable lifestyle before the Lord. And notice that this is further emphasized if anyone thinks himself. This isn't somebody coming up to you and saying, boy, you're a really good Christian. I see you going to church all the time. I see you doing things for others. This is one's own assessment of himself. You know, I'm I'm a pretty good Christian. I do pretty good stuff. I, I I think I'm in pretty good stead with the Lord. It is an internal examination and assessment as opposed to that which is external. But just in case someone might assert, he goes on to describe the third element of our text, which is the effect of speech. And he says, the religious person must bridle his tongue. Now, if you're not familiar with horses, a bridle is a device that goes over the head of the horse by which the rider can control the animal. Obviously, a necessary device in the fact that you're dealing with uh, an animal that is 2,000 pounds of almost solid muscle and 15 to 20 times the size of a man that can run at 40 miles an hour. And if you're going to climb astride that animal, you'd better be able to control it. And such is the function of the bridle. There are straps that go over the ears and over the nose, under the throat to hold the bridle in place. And the the main emphasis are these rings on each side that all of this leather assembly ties to, including the reins. And then those rings are connected to a steel bit that goes through the 
mouth of the horse. And that rests in the back of the jaw between the two teeth, which is called the bar. So when you pull on that, that's a very sensitive area, and you're able to control that animal. It, it is a, a critical element, and one uh, I, I learned about early. I've shared with you my hunting story and time on a horse. Well, my first time on a horse, I was about four to five years old, and got on top of this bay mare that was a pretty strapping horse, and my mom wasn't too excited about it, but my dad assured her everything was going to be fine, and I'm in a fairly large open field, and he said, what could happen, Sandra? Well, you can imagine... I get on top of the horse, and I have no idea what anything does. The horse, horses are very bright. They re he recognized immediately that I was clueless. She recognized, rather, that I was clueless. And she bolts across the pasture. Well, rather than grabbing the reins and pulling like any scared child, I just grab a hold of the neck of the horse, let the reins go. So I am totally out of control, not that I ever was. And as the horse races and jumps over a three-foot ditch and approaches the fence at the end, I'm sensing impending doom. And just as we get to the fence, the horse stops dead and over the bars I go. Land on the fence on the other side and mostly fine because it was pretty much soft dirt. And it's at that point that I recognize that an understanding of what a bridle was would have been very helpful. Well, James tells us, that we are in like fashion to bridle our tongue. James says that the religious one must bridle his tongue. And the point is obvious here. We must have control over our tongues. Psalm 39.1 carries this idea forward where it says in Psalm 39 and verse 1, I said, I will guard my way that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth as with a muzzle while the wicked are in my presence. The psalmist understood that the tongue must be controlled, that, that with it man has the propensity to sin, and that it even must be dealt with as if a dog with a muzzle, and it must be restrained. And this is what James is telling us here, that if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue. The connection of the tongue and the heart is immediately revealed in the next phrase. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his own heart. And the connection of the tongue and heart, they are repeated throughout the scripture. We know that James often turns to the teaching of his brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, to exemplify his remarks, and where he pulls many of his comments. And so he does here. For Jesus warned of the heart's connection with the tongue in Matthew 12, 36. And the Lord wrote in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 36, but I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. Every careless word. When we're told to bridle our tongue, the Lord tells us that whenever we speak any careless word, that we will give account for it. Now, as I read and as I have studied and as I have considered, I had a moment of pause there. And I pray that you have as well. For we understand full well that we have spoken many careless words. 
And it is these which we will give an account of. And the connection of the tongue to the heart is immediately evident. The Lord also, a few verses prior in Matthew 12, 34, further comments of this connectivity of the tongue to the heart, where he says in Matthew 12, 34, you brood of vipers, speaking to the Pharisees, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. And this is a common teaching of our Lord in two other locations. He brings up this same message. That, it, that which we speak comes from the reality of what lies in our heart. It is a reflection of who we are and, and what we bring forth. And it is vital then in line with what James says that this must be bridled. Because the one who doesn't, not only is he deceived, but as it says next, his religion is worthless. He does not say that this religion is vain or that it is empty, but rather he says that it is of no value. It is of no worth. It, it's only an external effort which leaves the internal nature unchanged. Therein is the connection to the word religious. The one has failed to understand the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the Greek version of the Old Testament, this word worthless is used repeatedly to describe the worship of idols as that which is worthless. One commentator notes, a faith that focuses on the external efforts of rote prayers, church attendance or membership, or even participation in the ordinance of baptism and the Lord's Supper without the regenerating power of the gospel is as futile as idol worship. When we come and we have the privilege of coming together as the church to lift our hearts in song, to praise him in the glory of his word, if we do so without a regenerated heart, without understanding who we are in ourselves, it is of no worth. It is of no value. There is no worth in these external religious services apart from the inner work of God because there is no zeal. Do you remember the beautiful story of the Lord who disguises himself after the resurrection and comes to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And they walk along and they question Jesus as if he has no idea about what's going on. And they, they get to the house and Jesus, they ask Jesus in and they break the bread and immediately their eyes are opened and they see that it was the Lord and he vanishes from their sight. And what does it say? What did they next say to one another? Yes, did not our hearts burn within us? Beloved, this is what we must be. This is who we are. Our hearts must burn within us as we come and worship, as we consider the things of God, as we sing his glorious praises, and as we consider the excellencies and beauties of Jesus Christ. Our hearts must burn within us. Then we understand that we are not merely participating in rote prayers or coming to fulfill some type of religious obligation. We are coming because we want to commune with the most high God. 
We want him to know our hearts. We want him to examine us. We want him to expose our failures and our faults. Because therein we can grow. Therein we can repent from these things and come into a deeper understanding of who Christ is. Well, James will return to this topic of the tongue in chapter 3. But for now, this unbridled tongue and deceived heart are evidence of a worthless religion. And now, verse 27 contrasts the negative religion of verse 26 in typical James style, where he says there in verse 27, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Now, the worthless religion of verse 26 contrasted with that of the pure, true religion of verse 27. That first word, pure, is the opposite of what the Scripture often speaks about as being ceremonially unclean. The Old Testament being replete with that thought of uncleanness. Of course, the lepers as the primary indication. Those who had to walk around throughout and whenever they came upon people, they had to cry out continually, unclean, unclean, so that none would come near them. We also know that whenever an individual came alongside of a dead body or any of a number of other elements, that he would become unclean. But that is not the case here. For this religion is the opposite of unclean. It is pure. This word indicating that which is clean, that which is free from any wrong. So also with the second adjective, undefiled, that means that which has no spot. This is the word used of Jesus as our great high priest in Hebrews 7, 26. Hebrews chapter 7 and 26 says, For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. So here we're seeing that the religion that one has that is pure is on par with the one from whom the religion comes, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who was the perfect spotless Lamb of God. What a beautiful parallel. This word undefiled references that which is of eternal inheritance and is beyond the reach of decay or change. As 1 Peter 1.4 notes, isn't that incredible to consider? That this is the reality of faith. This is the truth and foundational bedrock of what we believe in. That it is unchangeable. That it is something which cannot be defiled, that it is that which no one can bring spot upon, which will never decay. Do we know of anything like that? Do we know of anything on this earth that does not decay? Does not Romans 8 tell us that the earth itself is passing away? What truths, what power exists in this understanding Many indeed, I would say, bring forth the power of this principle. The religion in the sight of our God is what we're speaking about. Religion that is lived out before our God and Father is completely opposite that which we just saw in verse 26. 
we must understand that this is the measure of our religion. It has nothing to do with external religion that we live before our families, before the church, or even the world. It is that which is lived out before God. Paul confirms this in Romans 2.13. He says there in Romans chapter 2 and verse 13, For it is not the hearer of the law who are just before God, but the doer of the law will be justified. As we look into the word, as we do it, as we live it, it becomes that which becomes a part of who we are. And in that we are justified. We are justified as we do, as we obey the truth of God's word. This is exactly what we just talked about back in our third point in verses 22 to 25. To be doers of the word and not hearers only. Well, God will judge the merits of each one's religion. But James beautifully points out that he is not just the judge, but he is also our father. One who is intimately concerned with the condition of our heart. I wish you'd all been here this morning to hear Mark's wonderful illustration of this as it related to his brother teaching his son to swim. And as he lets the son go, having taught him all that he needed in order to be swim, and he flounders and screams and uh, eventually swims, but the father does not reach out and pull him out of the water. Knowing that he has the tools, he just stays within arm's reach, concerned that he will learn and grow. And then as he does take those strokes, the, the dad grabs the child and tells him how proud he is. This is our heavenly father. He understands that at times we are floundering and struggling. And yet he is always right there, ready for us to take those steps of obedience, which he has taught to us, and to grasp us into his loving arms and to show us his benevolence and his magnificent care. This is the Father that is also our God. He loves us with his perfect and unconditional love. And our our Father's desire is, is that all our lives before him is like a reflection of the love that he has for us. Do we ever stop and think about that's what our lives exemplify? That when people around us look at who we are, that they see the love of God in us, that they see us ready to to love the unlovable and to reach out because that's, how we are to live, this is what our religion before our God is, a reflection of the mirror, which is his word. And now we're brought to recognize what it is that God will honor in two different areas. The first is to visit orphans and widows in their distress. These two groups indicate the most needy of the ancient world. The word visit comes from the same Greek word for overseer or elder. So this visitation that is done by these representing God's gracious oversight, by representing his love and his mercy and his compassion, it means to look upon someone to comfort and to bring help. How vital is that? That we are those who are out looking to the most needy, to the widows, to the orphans, and bringing this visitation, this 
privileged oversight, which we have been shown, this love and this mercy and compassion. And this is evident also because these widows and orphans are written to us as those who are in distress. Some translations treat distress as affliction. And the word can even be translated as tribulation. And it indicates a condition of severity. In the ancient world, the widow and the orphan had zero resources. In our day, we have different programs to help and some assistance provided, although many still are in a very dire situation, to be sure. But in the ancient world, there was no hope for these who were truly widows, who had no family and who had no hope of provision. So also with the orphan. It was vital that these were reached out to. And the care of the orphans and widows has always been a prominent theme throughout Scripture. In fact, if we go back and we look at the book of Job... In Job 36, he proclaims that his righteousness is evidenced by the fact that he does care for orphans and widows. And he talks about that never was there an orphan without food that was not welcome at his table. And that widows were always considered in their affliction. This as he proclaimed his righteousness before his attacking friends. Even in Isaiah 1, at the beginning of God's judicial reckoning against Judah, there is a prominent feature of caring for widows and orphans. And that seems a little unique to me, somewhat strange. Amidst God's judgment of the nation of Israel for having rejected him, this becomes a paramount feature. The people have abandoned the Lord in Isaiah 1. They have acted wickedly and taken advantage of others. They're sacrificing in their religious observances, but it has no heart behind it. It is empty, as we saw in verse 26. And in Isaiah 1.16, God tells them what they must do. And he writes in Isaiah 1 and 16, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, and plead for the widow. These are the closing paramount remarks which God makes that exemplify true religion. This is righteousness lived out. And in Isaiah 1.23, he again chastises them because they do not defend the orphan. And they do not plea for the widow. But they had failed at the hallmark example of true religion. And it wasn't any different in Jesus' day where he rebukes the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 14, where Jesus pronounces a woe on them for devouring widows' houses. Beloved, that's exactly what goes on behind the theme of the parable of the widow's might. It is not pure religion to seek to take the last cent of a widow. It shows the Pharisees who had guilted this poor woman into giving everything that she had. These are horrific examples of abuses. And Jesus powerfully emphasizes the positive nature of caring for these needy folks in Matthew 25. In fact, I'd like to ask you, take just a minute and turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 25. 
Matthew chapter 25 and verse 31. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, you'll find it on page 988. Matthew 24 and 25 are known as the Olivet Discourse. That is where Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives and he is teaching to his disciples. And Matthew records the longest section of this teaching in Matthew 25 as he concludes this great section of the Olivet Discourse. And in Matthew 25, 31, Jesus says, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. So we have this divine scene of the great white throne judgment with the sheep on one side and the goats on the other. And then verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right, come you you who are blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. So these are the sheep that he is inviting to inherit his kingdom. And this is why in verse 35, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. And I was a stranger and you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it to me. So the importance of ministering to orphans and widows is shown in our text as that which is rewarded with eternal life. And contrarily, in verse 41, then he will also say to those on the left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devils and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat, and I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink, and a stranger and you did not invite me, and naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they themselves will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? And he will answer them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. The reality of caring for the least of society, these, the widows and orphans, is the critical picture. And what a beautiful picture of pure religion. And we understand why God chose this example of righteousness to orphans and widows, don't we? The reason is because they can't pay anything back. True widows and orphans, they have nothing in the world. There is no expectation of worldly accolade, no false religious award. They're not going to return the favor and help you out. So this 
is the first example of that which is pure and undefiled. And the second example of pure religion is at the end of verse 27. And it is to keep oneself unstained by the world. The world here refers to the evil world system in which we each live and exist. And that which we must continue to battle. This is the same usage that John often talks about in his text, such as 1 John 2.15, a text we're very familiar with. 1 John chapter 2 and 15, the apostle writes, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. This is the distinction between living in this world which we're in. We can't sequester ourselves. We're not to pull back and create some type of religious commune. Because we have been given the gospel to carry forth to the world. But as we are out in the world, we must be so careful not to be stained by it. Not to be defiled. Not to allow these things of the world to come upon and for us to exude those things which are part of our flesh and our nature. That word unstained in verse 27 here means unpolluted that our lives are lived as free from spot and the stain of the world. The same word is used of our Lord in 1 Peter 1.19. So for those keeping notes, we've seen a lot of references also to 1 Peter through these texts. And incidentally, a great opportunity to join us as we've just started 1 Peter on our Wednesday night study. Well, James gives us an incredible picture of proper religious affections. In many ways, the section becomes fulfillment of being a doer and not a hearer in verses 22 to 25. Many see these verses as establishing a works righteousness form of salvation. Some have said that men who preach on such texts and boldly proclaim the necessity of obedience to God are doing the same that they are proclaiming a works-based salvation. That these verses and others like them reflect a moralistic code, one absent of the gospel and of faith. Yet like our introduction of misunderstanding of the meaning of our nation's military holidays, these who make such allegations completely miss the true understanding of this and every text that calls the believer to obedience. And such an assessment is seriously missing the intent of the text. Because there can be no true obedience without the gospel. You cannot obey with a true heart without having received a new heart. I cannot complete that which is pure and undefiled religion. I cannot visit orphans and widows. I cannot keep myself unstained from the world unless my religion is pure. Unless my religion is founded on the truth of Jesus Christ. Unless the gospel is reigning in my heart and I am continuing to proclaim to myself 
the reality that Christ has put into me. That I am his, that he has opened my eyes to draw me to himself and show me that in and of myself, I am a desperate sinner. That I have no hope of salvation apart from Christ. But because of him, I can rejoice. Because of him, I can do acts of obedience. Because of him, I can live a life that will please him, that will bring him honor, that will put him on display as glorious before the entire world. And all of that because he has saved me. Because he has opened my eyes and shown me that I have no hope. That I'm a sinner who ought to be completely and forever separated from God. But yet, he has drawn me to himself. He has given me the gift of repentance. And he has given me his word. And he has put his heart in every true believer so that they may obey. And it is only through that heart that they can move forward in obedience. Our text is not about blind obedience. It is not about legalistic rule filling. In fact, it specifically contradicts such religion. Rather, it is obedience from a true and pure heart that produces God-honoring religion. It's not what we are in and of ourselves. It's only what we are in Christ. It's all about Christ because without him, there is no religion. Every act of obedience, every manifestation of love, every joyful expression is rooted and grounded in him. All which are pure expressions are generated from the heart's overflow of Jesus Christ. Every action of Christ, which we see in his word, drives us to be more loving, drives us to worship him more, drives us to sing his praises and to rejoice in serving and loving people as he loves us. Beloved, all of our lives are a loving outpouring of obedience. Obedience that comes from Christ, that looks forward to Christ, and that seeks to honor Christ. When this is the foundation of our obedience, then the necessary outcome reflects proper religious affections. Does your life reflect these affections? Do you have that desire to minister to the least in our society? And are you pursuing it because we each have the ability? And are you seeking to keep yourself unstained by the world? We must be driven by the overflow of Christ into obedience in all of our lives because this is what God is calling each of us to. And I pray that he will reveal this in each of our hearts and that we will glorify him with the glorious blessings that he has given us in each of our lives.